morning. Turn with me, if you will, to Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter 13. I just want to take a moment to thank the elders for the opportunity to be able to preach here. Um, It's exciting to be able to open the Word of God with you all here this morning. I've gotten to study the book of Judges for the last week, and it's been really exciting to me. Particularly, I've been looking at the story of Samson, and that's what I'm going to, I'm going to be back here preaching two more times the next couple weeks, and I'll be going through the story of Samson with you guys, and it's a really fun story. The author tells this story with a lot of humor, even though he's discussing one of the darkest times in Israel's history. And ultimately, the book of Judges helps show us that the people of the Old Testament, as we talked about when we were doing the London Baptist Confession, when we were talking about the fall of man, right? Everything we do is opposite to God. And it's true in the Old Testament, and it's true with us in the New Testament. And so they were looking to the same Savior that we trust in today, right? Jesus. So um, it's exciting. It's exciting to kind of look at the dark parts of history because we realize that's the same kind of people we are, and we need the same Jesus. So with that, let's jump into this text. Judges 13, verses 1 through 24. It's kind of a longer reading, but stay with me. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, And so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for forty years. Now there was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, Be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he didn't tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O God, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us, and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah rose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life, and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, or anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please, let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer that to the Lord. 
For Manoah did not know that he was an angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. And the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or announced to us such things as these. And so the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy scriptures through which we hear you speak to us. By the power of your spirit, enlighten our eyes and soften our hearts. Confront us with the truth of your law and then comfort us with the truth of your gospel. Help us to see and believe Jesus. And we pray for the preacher, for we know his sins are many. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things we love about the heroes of history is that they don't settle for the normal into which they're born. Take Martin Luther the monk, for example. He stood up to the oppression of the Roman Catholic Church and all the injustices that they had created through their bad theology. We love it when at the Diet of Worms, he's told to recant his beliefs before a tribunal, and instead he replies, I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. We love that. We love that courage. Or take the other famous Martin Luther, Martin Luther King. He doesn't sit back and watch as a racist world oppresses his people. He stood up for what was true, and we look back and we applaud his bravery and his courage. He's the opposite of apathetic. He wasn't content to live in his situation. He wasn't content with the status quo. And that's what makes both of these stories, of both of these Martin Luthers, so captivating and so inspiring. They weren't apathetic. In today's story, however, we see that Israel has become apathetic. They've become apathetic both to God and to the foreign oppressors who are oppressing them. And into this story of apathy, a hero is born. But this is not the hero anyone would really want. In fact, Although he has the special birth of a hero, as we're going to find out in the coming weeks, he really lives the life of an anti-hero. We will find that we really will have to wait for another hero to come later who will finally free us permanently from oppression. And so, the big idea for today is this, that despite our apathy and despite our insecurities, God is faithful to his promises. Despite our apathy, And despite our insecurities, God is faithful to his promises. And we're going to talk about that in three parts. First, our apathy, and then our insecurities, and finally, God's faithfulness. So first, our apathy. 
Like I said, Israel's become apathetic. But to or, in order to understand how we got here, we have to tell a really, really quick history of what happened before we got here to the point of Judges. So we know Moses brings the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, right? And he wanders with them in the wilderness for 40 years. And right before he enters the promised land, right before he brings them in to the land they were supposed to be given... Moses stops and he gives them a speech, a speech that's recorded for us in the book of Deuteronomy. And in this speech, God is reiterating for his people the law which he gave them before, right? And now remember, we're dealing with the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is different than the New Covenant which you and I are a part of, right? As the Apostle John tells us in his gospel, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, so there's a distinction between Moses and Jesus, and we have, to be, we have to be careful about how we think about these things. But here, in this speech, God is using Moses to give his law to his people. What to do and what not to do. And then in chapter, eight of the, chapter 28 of the book of Deuteronomy, God tells his people that he will bless them if on the whole they obey, and if on the whole they disobey, he's going to curse them. Blessings if the nation as a whole obeys, curses if they don't. And so, to be absolutely clear, this doesn't apply to modern-day America, doesn't apply to modern-day Israel, doesn't apply to any country who's existed at any time except for ancient Israel. At this, it's a particular thing for, for a particular people, right? And so, if they obeyed, they'd get to live in the land for a long time and their harvest would be great. But if they didn't obey, if they abandoned God then they would go into famine, and other foreign nations would come and oppress them. And now after this, shortly after these speeches, Moses dies, and Joshua leads his people, right? And we see this story play out in the book of Joshua. And the book of Joshua is filled with a lot of conquering and a lot of success for the people of Israel. And the reason for that is because they're, on the whole, pretty obedient, So the story is pretty positive. They're conquering their enemies. They're taking the land that God has promised them. And it's this beautiful story. Of course, there's some stories of disobedience in there, and God punishes them for that. But on the whole, it's a really positive and encouraging story. But then we hit the book of Judges, and everything changes. Joshua, in the first chapter of Judges, dies. And immediately, just like that, the people start worshiping the gods of the nations around them. They abandon God. And because of that, just like God said he would, he hands them into the hands of the nations around them to be oppressed. But then the people, they realize the mistake they've done. They realize that they've abandoned God, and so they call out to God for help. They know he's their only salvation, right? And so they call out to God, and God, because he's a merciful God, hears them. He hears them, and he raises up judges for them to save them. And these judges aren't like what we think of judges. They're not in courts and stuff. They're, they're more like mini kings, kind of like temporary kings that God raises up. And these judges would destroy and defeat these oppressors who are oppressing Israel. And once they would do that, Israel would be returned to peace, and they would go back to worshiping God, and everything would be good until the judge died. And once the judge died, they would abandon God again. And then God would send another nation to oppress the people. And then they would call out for help. So there's this cycle that starts. Israel disobeys. God punishes. Israel asks for help. And then God sends it through a judge, right? And this cycle just keeps repeating. Except 
as the book goes on, we find that the cycle starts breaking down. The people still keep disobeying, of course, but, and God still hands them over to the nations to be oppressed. But Israel starts calling out to God less and less. And the judges that are sent to save Israel, they become worse and worse people. And so this perfect cycle that we saw at the beginning starts descending. It starts breaking down into more of a downward spiral. And so in the book of Judges, Israel's in this downward spiral. And here with Samson, we reach the last of the Judges. We're at the bottom of this, of this spiral. And so the cycle has become super weak at this point. In our story, the people have been in the hand of the Philistines now for 40 years. But we don't hear anything about them calling out to God for help. And this isn't a detail that's just accidentally left out. The author is very intentional about this. The people have become apathetic. And this lack of a cry for help is mirrored even in Manoah's wife's situation. See, in every one of these, the Bible has a lot of these uh, announcement of birth narratives, right? Um, That some angel of God will show up and tell a woman that she's going to give birth and the son is going to be some child of promise. And this, this theme happens a lot throughout Scripture. But every time it happens, the barren woman is always found pleading with God that, that God would open her womb. Except for this story. Except for here. Manoah's wife is not pleading out to God. And this is intentionally left out because it's supposed to mirror the fact that just like she's apathetic, the nation of Israel has become apathetic. No one is calling out to God in their helplessness. Right? And in fact, the state of Israel was so bad at this point that when the angel tells Manoah's wife what she's not supposed to eat when she's pregnant, the angel includes not to eat anything unclean. This shouldn't have had to been specified. No one in Israel was supposed to ever eat anything unclean. The fact that it had to be told that you weren't supposed to be eating anything unclean meant that the people had forgotten about the rules. They totally abandoned God's laws. They totally, and the food eating restrictions, that stuff was core to what made Israel Israel, what separated them from the other nations. It was core to what Moses was telling the people. And so the fact that they had forgotten means they just stopped caring, right? In other words, they'd become apathetic. They'd stopped hoping for relief from their situation. They just accepted their situation as a new normal. Why change things? Why try to be free from the Philistines? Let's just, let's just make this our new home. If you're like me, this isn't a hard feeling to empathize with, especially in the Christian life. We all go through periods of our life where apathy seems to reign. Maybe we go through the motions, but we've really stopped caring. At times, we feel so oppressed by a sin struggle that we just can't shake. At a certain point, you just stop trying to fight it. You just lay down and quit. This is my new normal. This is where I'm going to be. Of course, apathy is a sin, but it feels different than other sin. It doesn't feel like this outright rebellion against God. It's more of like the silent or agnostic rebellion. You just don't care. Your emotions that you once had have dried out. The passion that once drove you has disappeared. Sometimes it's sin that drains that from us. 
sometimes life is just hard and it beats it out of us. Or sometimes the church burns us too. There's all sorts of ways that we reach this point of apathy. Maybe you're here today and you feel this apathy. The story of Samson, though, is the story of God working for the good of an apathetic people. He was never apathetic about them, even though they had become apathetic toward him. But before we dive into the good news, let's look a little deeper at this story. And this will bring us to our second point, our insecurities. So, this story has a lot of themes, as I said before, a lot of themes and features that all the miraculous birth announcements in scriptures have. There's a barren woman, there's a messenger from God, someone who really doesn't believe the promise, someone who's doubtful. In this case, it's Manoah, we're going to find out. And then there's the birth of the baby at the end of the story. And if you ask me who the identity of this angel is, I think it's a pre-incarnate Christ. It's God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, coming to earth even before he was born of Mary in the New Testament. And why do I think that? Well, first, by the end of the story, it's pretty clear that the messenger himself is God. He says his name is Wonderful, and then they offer a sacrifice to the one who works wonders. And in Hebrew, the words are the same here, and in English. The angel is the one who worked wonders in the Old Testament. That's what he's saying. And these, these wonders is a reference back to all the wondrous things that God does when he brings the people out of slavery, out of Egypt. All those wonders is what's being referenced here. And so, not only that, but at the end of this story, right, Manoah thinks he's going to die because he's seen the face of God. And he's right that he has seen God. He's just wrong that he's gonna, not going to He's wrong about the fact that he's going to die. That's not going to happen. But he is right about the fact that he's seen God. And so I think that makes it clear that the, this angel is God himself. And it's the role of the second person of the Trinity. It's the role of the Son of God to reveal the Father. Right? John calls Jesus the Word of God. He's a messenger from God, speaking the words of the Father to us. Right? And so because of that, I believe this is Christ showing up a thousand years before he actually shows up on the scene in a manger. And so, returning to the story, we notice also that we don't get the name of the wife. We don't get the name of Manoah's wife. Which is actually to help us see that the main character of the story that we're supposed to keep our eye on is Manoah. It's Manoah. He's the husband. But not because he's a good example. Definitely not that. Really, it's actually because he's a blockhead, as one commentary puts it. Throughout the story, he's shown to be this insecure man. The unnamed wife, she's logical. She's level-headed. But Manoah, the husband, is always trying to take control of the situation. He's trying to prove himself throughout the story. When his wife comes to him and says that the angel of the Lord has appeared to her, the first thing he does is pray to God in order for this man to show up again. And for us, it might just seem like, eh, whatever, that makes sense. Get some more information. But the reason he's asking for the, uh, for the messenger to show up again is so that he doesn't have to hear this through his wife. He wants to know it straight from the angel. He doesn't want to hear this secondhand. He doesn't trust his wife. In fact, he doesn't even believe it's an angel, as we see, until the very end of the story. 
And so that's why it's actually kind of funny that when the angel does return, he appears only to Manoah's wife while she's sitting in the field by herself. Manoah is out somewhere else, and so Manoah's wife has to go find Manoah, bring her back to the angel so that Manoah can meet the angel. And when he does finally meet the angel, he's all about controlling the conversation. He starts asking all the questions. He first asks if this angel is the same angel that appeared the first time, which, in essence, he's trying to fact-check his wife. And then he asks about the content of the message again. He wants to make sure that what his wife told him was the same thing that the angel was going to tell him. Again, he's doubtful. He feels, and then also he's trying to find out more information than what his wife knew because he wanted to seem like he had more knowledge than his wife. He's constantly insecure throughout the story. And so the, essentially, the angel essentially says, look, it's what I told her the first time. Don't eat anything unclean or drink anything that comes from grapes. So Manoah basically gets no new information. And really, there wasn't a need for more information either. They're all talking about this Nazarite vow. That's what Samson, their son, was going to have to do. And this Nazarite vow is a pretty straightforward vow to take. It's not a complicated, there's not a long list of rules. It's hard and it's strict, but it comes down to just don't drink, don't cut your hair, and don't touch a dead body. They're, they're strict rules, but it's pretty simple. There wasn't need for more clarification. It's all listed in Numbers chapter 6. And it's pretty straightforward. The only special thing about Samson is that he would have to do it his whole life. From the time he was born all the way to when he died. Most people, when they took a Nazarite vow, it was a temporary thing you did. When you were going to do something great for God, you would take this vow on for however long your mission was you complete it, then you go back to a regular human being. But Samson was doing this for his whole life. He was set apart by this. But regardless, Manoah didn't need any extra information. He was simply asking all of this in order to, in order to calm down his insecurities, in order to make himself feel better in his, about his relationship with the angel and his relationship with his wife. And this, again, is why he then goes on to ask if the angel would like to stay for a meal. This might seem to us as just a nice gesture, like, of course, stay for a meal, you know, hospitality or whatever. But he's actually doing this so that he can say he's the host and the angel's a guest. It's a power play. He wants to be able to lord that over him. And so the angel replies essentially, no, thank you, right? And so Manoah tries another tactic. He asks for the angel's name, which is an, another ancient way of, of, of making a power play. If you had somebody else's name, you had control over them. But the angel cryptically replies, nope, it's wonderful, which is brilliant, right? In a way, it does still say something about who he is. It tells you something that he is, he is the one who works wonders, as we talked about. But it also is a way of saying, look, I am way above you, Manoah. I am way above you. You can't attain to the level I'm at, right? And so he's putting Manoah in his place through this. And so all that's left for Manoah to be able to do is offer a sacrifice to God, right, through the angel. And that's what he does. And then finally, the last place we see Manoah's insecurities at the very end of the story when he thinks he's about to die because he's seen the face of God, right? And at this point, 
his wife is like, look, you're not going to die. You're not going to die. If he wanted you dead, you'd be dead already. Instead, he's clearly been gracious to us. He's given us these promises. He's announced this good news to you and to me. And so his wife has to calm him down. She's the one with all her theology correct, right? And so we can look at all this insecurity of Manoah and laugh. And we're supposed to. That's what the author intends. It's supposed to be this humorous story. But eventually, we also realize that we play the same game as Manoah's playing, right? We're often insecure with each other and with God. With each other, we're always trying to impress each other, trying to see who's, who knows more theology than someone else. We try to see who can look the most spiritual, because we're so insecure, we have to find some way to curate our image, right? And we do this with God as well. We try to impress him with our good works, right? We don't, we're not content with sitting down at his table. We want to be the hosts where we host God. We want him to have to come to our table. We want to put his name down in our guest books. We're not satisfied with having our name in his books, Luckily, God is a faithful God, and he won't kick us out for this, thankfully. He is faithful despite all of our insecurity. And so this brings us to the last point, that God is faithful. God is faithful. The crux of this story is this, despite the fact, despite the fact that Israel is so apathetic, despite the fact that Manoah is an insecure husband, God sends a son to redeem his people. God doesn't wait for Israel to finally come to their senses and finally call out to him for help. God doesn't wait for Manoah to finally mature and get his insecurities out of the way. He simply makes a promise in the midst of all of that that he will send them a son and that this son will begin to deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. And if you know the rest of the story, you know that Samson's not much of a leader, right? We're going to talk about in the coming weeks that he is far from a good example. His life is filled with so much lust, so much anger, and so much vengeance. Ultimately, he points for the need of a better son to come. And God does send his son. Years later, a son would be born. Like Samson, his mother will be unable to bear a child. But a man of God will come and tell her that she will bear a child. The man of God will tell her that the child will be set apart from birth to redeem his people. But unlike Samson, he will listen to the word of God. Unlike Samson, he will do what is right in the eyes of God instead of doing what is right in his own eyes. The name of the son, of course, is Samuel. I know, you're expecting Jesus. I set you up. It's okay. (laughs) But it's true. Just a few pages later in your Bible, Samuel shows up on the scene, right? And all of those things I said is true about Samuel too. The Bible is actually pitting these two characters next to each other. Samuel is going to continue to help free the people of Israel, especially by first reorienting them back to the one true God. And then one day he's going to anoint David, And David is finally going to crush the Philistines once and for all. However, Samuel and David, too, don't fix things up permanently, right? 
Israel goes off into exile about 500, 600 years from where we are in the story right now. And so, and they don't come back from that. That's the end of Israel as we know it. And so there needed to be a new Samuel, a better Samuel and a better Samson, someone who would fix things up perfectly. Someone who would fix things permanently, right? And there needed to be a better covenant. Not this covenant with Moses that there was blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Because if the Old Testament teaches us anything is that we always end up on the side of curses and disobedience. It's who we are. And so we can't save ourselves from obedience. And that's where the people of Judges find themselves too. And so, yes, there is another son sent. A better, even better than Samson and Samuel's son. His name, of course, is Jesus. He would save his people from deeper problems than just the oppression of the Philistines. He will save us from more than just exile. And Jesus would make a covenant that was actually unconditional. In this covenant, you and I will never have to fear being cast out, being thrown into exile. We'll never have to fear not being good enough. Because in this covenant, he is good enough for us. In this covenant, he takes the exile for us on the cross. And like God sent a son into the apathy of the Israelites, he sends this gospel. He preaches this gospel of his son into our apathy. Even on those days when you struggle to call out to him, he hasn't stopped pursuing you. Even on those days when you feel like your struggles with sin are simply a new normal that you can't shake, he says that nothing can separate you from his love. He says you're free from the dominion of sin and that he's defeated it, even if it doesn't feel that way. As Paul says, when we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God acts in our apathy. And he preaches the gospel to us in our apathy. The gospel promises are still true even if we don't feel them. And they call to us to rest in them again, to believe in them again. That's the only cure to apathy, to trust those again. And to remember that it's been true even when we don't feel it. And this gospel speaks also to our insecure selves as well. Despite the fact that we're all Manoahs who want our way with God, who want to control our relationships with each other, God gives us all these blessings in the gospel. We might try to impress God with our good works, but he's not impressed. And ultimately, he humbles us and shows us that our righteous deeds will never be good enough. Instead, he gives us Christ's own righteousness. He meets our insecurities with a message of security in Christ. And ultimately, in conclusion, this leads us to the Lord's table. Manoah tries to sit Christ down at his table, and he tries to be the host, but Jesus won't have any of that. Instead, Christ sets for us a table himself. He gives us seats at this table, and he feeds us himself. So don't worry if you come here burdened today. This table is for you. It it says you're forgiven. If you come here today apathetic, he feeds you now to sustain you and to encourage you and to build you up. And if you come here 
trying to manipulate and control God with your good works, trying to con Him into loving you by all your good behavior, you can't. You will never impress God by your own works. But in the gospel, because of Christ's righteousness, Christ is, God is already impressed with you. You are, insecure in, you are secure in Him now. So trust Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are faithful to us. We are so often apathetic and unmoved by your love. But your love, thankfully, doesn't cease to push itself upon us. We're so often insecure and we feel the need to have to earn our place again before you. But you remind us week after week at this table that we are secure in you. And you calm our fears. Keep us resting and believing in these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.